politics Some culture and craft beer Politics And that is why you're here Politics Adam's up Welcome to Potoms Up. Fred and Blotto discuss the politics of today, the culture of our lives, and the beer of our state. Potoms Up. All y'all, how's it going? Here we are, episode 65. The magic number when I get to retire. (laughs) Not quite there yet, but... I'm in semi-retirement in my isolation world, having a great time and ready to do some chit-chatting with the boys and have a couple of Michigan craft beers. To my right, Blado, how's it going? It's going great. And I, I don't know if I'll be retiring at 65. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll have to, you know, come up with a new definition of retirement. Yeah, I don't actually believe I'm going to either. It's just my wishful thinking. <laughs> and uh, Nobs is with us here, right? Yep, I'm here and running the controls. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure my generation gets to retire, but I'll certainly try. <laughs> uh, oh please, he'll be retiring from his three day work week, and oh woe is me. <laughs> uh, I need to move to like the Caribbean and just work remote. That's what I'm thinking. That's what you ought to do. Yeah. You're single, you should go mingle, man. Do it up. <laughs> well, I can't travel anywhere right now. Uh, so I think we ought to let the listeners in on uh, this very special episode before we kind of get to the beer uh, to make sure that they uh, are, are staying tuned to, to what we uh, what we have going on today. Uh, Fred? Uh, sure, why not? Let the cat out of the bag. And so joining us will be Barbara McQuaid, former United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and currently a professor of law at the University of Michigan. And yeah. so we're pretty excited to uh, have her joining us to talk about um, really kind of what's happening at the state and federal level regarding the stay-at-home orders and lots of other things that she might have on her mind. So after we uh, get these beers tapped, uh, we'll bring her on in. Excellent. L- really looking forward to uh, talking with Barb, and I think it's going to be a, an amazing episode. So don't go anywhere. <laughs> All right. Now so to the, the second very importance is the beer. And it, it was Fred's week to do this. I'll speak third party just because I can. Um, what I picked up is called Electron Brown, and it's from Old Nation Brewing. Uh, it's an espresso bean double brown ale, and uh, that was probably the reason I picked this particular beer up, because I don't ever recall having a double brown ale. I'm not even sure what it is, to be honest with you. So that that's what caught my attention. Plus, it's a, actually a pretty cool-looking graphic on the... Uh, Very cool. It's a great can. It looks like he's like a motorcycle dude or something. From like like the 40s? Yeah. Yeah. Like a Marlon Brando down by the riverfront look. 
He's pretty cool looking. There's um, flames behind him. Ooh, flames and coffee beans and butt and motorcycle wheels. <laughs> and a wrench. I mean, it's this a man's man beer here. Box wrench. Oh no, this is the open end. Um, it is eight point one on the alcohol level, which we definitely appreciate. In IBU of twenty five. So uh, I'm looking forward to this, and uh, let's pour it up and see what we got, guys. I got to believe this is going to be in my wheelhouse. I like coffee beer. I like hops in the, you know, less than 30 range. Um, I do like brown ales. I, uh, just like yourself there, Fred, don't know what a, uh, a, a double brown is. So uh, I'm going to find out. It's a pretty beer. It's brown. Uh, I, can, I can smell the espresso. Yeah, you really can. Yeah, that, that that hit me before it got on my taste buds. What's your first impressions there, Blotto? Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, nice and malty and smooth. It's uh, The coffee aroma is greater than the coffee taste, which I think maybe that would, that'll help you out a little bit, Knobs. Um, but... Uh, Right away, I'm going to put this in the uh, for me category, I believe. What about you, Nobs? Um, uh, there's too much coffee flavor for me. Oh, come on. No. Even when I cracked open the can, I just got that whiff of it. Uh, it it's a well-made beer, but I would not order it again. You know, I've come around on IPAs. You need to come around on coffee stouts. And coffee. Can we, comprom- and coffee can we compromise? Brown. Can we compromise with just porters and stouts and not coffee porters and stouts? <laughs> but there's so many out there, though. I mean, I it almost seems like you're, you're going to have to stick that toe in the water, and then the rest of you is going to have to follow it in, man. Maybe you with have to start many, with how many coffee beers we've had. I've stuck more than a toe in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe you just have to start drinking coffee. That would probably help. Yeah, yeah, yeah that would, would probably help. Another yeah. crutch in your life. Go for it. <laughs> how many vices can I collect? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, Fred, what, how do you want, what do you want to add to this? Well, I, I I agree that it definitely does not taste as coffee as it smells, as the bouquet would lead you to believe. So, um, actually a little disappointed in that because I like coffee, so... I think it's got a sweet finish, which I'm not crazy about. And it's kind of lingering, the sweetness is. Um, So right now, I'm not quite sure if it's for me. Um, I'm going to have to take a few more swallows to figure this out. But my initial reaction is, I don't like that sweetness. It's a little little too sweet for me, but we'll see how it goes. It, it is sort of sticking to the roof of the mouth. It, it does have a very yep. um, um, kind of that thick mouth feel, uh, mm-hmm. which I, I guess that's part of the double brown because double brown or you know brown ales are usually a little bit thinner than say your porters, but this could pass as a porter easily. If someone handed me this beer and said, have you had this porter? I wouldn't know that it was something other than. Yeah, I agree. Um, but uh, yeah, it's certainly going to be enjoyable. 
I'll definitely finish it. It's not going to go to waste, that's for sure. <laughs> do you have three more? I do have three more. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe next time we're uh, we're broadcasting from your studio, there'll be one there for me. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know when that's going to be, right? Yeah, yeah. that could be a long time from yeah, now. Yeah, it and, could be. You know... Uh, I said I wouldn't order another one, but since I already have them, doesn't need to go to waste. There either. All right. Yeah. Hey, well, I think our special guest has been uh, waiting long enough. So, uh, uh, what do you say we link her in? All right. At this time, we'd like to introduce our very special guest, Barb McQuaid. Hi, Barb. Thanks for joining. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much for having me. For those that don't know Barbara McQuaid, she's the former United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and currently a professor of law at the University of Michigan. Um, and uh, we feel very honored to, uh, to have you on. Uh, well, thanks very much. I'm glad to be here with you. You know, um, I think that any uh, medium that can reach people to talk about issues is a great way to uh, provide information. I'm glad you guys uh, have a podcast, and I hope that uh, you reach many people who might not otherwise hear some of the things that uh, that I might have to say. So I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, again, the pleasures are all ours. Um, you're kind of a podcasting pro, right? You've done this a number of times. I don't know if I'm a podcasting pro, but I, I have uh, been a guest on a handful of podcasts. When are you going to start your own podcast? <laughs> Um, you know, I'll probably leave that to others. I've got other things on my plate, but I uh, always welcome the opportunity to, to be able to have a voice. All right. Uh, um, real quickly, I, I thought um, I'd, I'd tell kind of, you know, how this came to be. Um, uh, I, uh, I ran into uh, Barbara on an airplane uh, almost a year ago. Uh, I think it was about a year ago, May. Um, and it was in Minneapolis. We had just landed. I uh, got up out of my chair, pulled my luggage out um, of the overhead, and kind of turned around. And you were standing behind me. And I, I, I looked at you, and I knew who you were, recognized you right away. But I didn't know uh, if I should say anything. Um, you know, I didn't know if you, you appreciate any level of notoriety like that. And so I. I, I probably just sort of stared <laughs> and, and then you took the initiative and you said, hi, I'm Barb McQuaid. <laughs> and uh, I think you put your hand out for a handshake. I, I, I don't really recall, um, but I appreciated it. And uh, I said, yes, I know who you are. Um, and, and then we had a quick chat uh, about the Mueller report because it had, um, it had only been out a couple of weeks at that point. Um, and we were kind of waiting to see what was going to become of the Mueller report uh, at that time. Uh, and so then we talked a, a little bit about that on our way exiting the plane. And uh, we had already been doing the podcast, and I was so mad at myself I, when when we went our different ways in the airport. And I thought, why didn't I ask her to be on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Got to strike why the iron's hot sometimes. Um, so I sent you an email and uh, you responded and we've finally been able to get it together. 
So again. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the invitation. Um, before we uh, before we get going on the um, uh, the, the topics um, that we had kind of outlined, um, uh, being a, a a law professor and at University of Michigan, the COVID pandemic has really really disrupted um, the education um, around the country, and particularly for senior students. Um, and uh, you know, I'm sure we'll have a few of your students listening to this. Um, and I don't know if you wanted to say anything about, you know, kind of the way this is wrapped up for them or, you know, directly to the students or about the education um, impact uh, at all before we kind of get started. But it, it is kind of what you're uh, involved in today. Sure, we've, uh, we've just finished our semester in Michigan. We now have final exams. And our last, uh, you know, five weeks or so were really unusual. We did all of our teaching online. Um, I, I will say certainly something was lost in that process. The ability to interact with students in person was certainly lost. And for our graduating seniors, you know, they really lost a lot of special op opportunities, their graduation and some other fun activities that occurred in their last semester. But, you know, I was very impressed with the students, um, number one, for their resilience and their adaptability. They are digital natives and they um, were pretty seamless in uh, doing classes online. Uh, you know, we used a an electronics platform to have classes online. It went actually remarkably well. Um, and the other thing I was struck by, you know, I checked in on all of them to see how they were doing. And um, really without exception, although they were not enjoying the experience that they had expected or hoped for, they, um, I think, appreciated that their situation was in most circumstances much better than the circumstances of many other people. And so they were not focusing on what they had lost, but uh, they were pretty appreciative for what they had, you know, their good health and the opportunity to study law, um, a diversion to keep them occupied. Um, and so, uh, you know, yes, uh, they've all suffered something that uh, that all of us would wish they hadn't. But I was impressed with their resilience and their appreciation and perspective. So they've made the best of it. Um, and, uh, you know, in many ways, while they lost one thing, they gained something else, which is their ability and their knowledge that they can overcome adversity and, and be resilient. Um, because when you're practicing law, you will find um, from time to time you, you have setbacks and you need to find ways to uh, overcome them. And so I, I hope that they will draw on this experience to benefit them throughout their careers. Mm, very commendable. Yeah, there's a there's a specialness just to the fact that they're graduating, uh, you know, during this time of, you know, the, this time in our history. Um, you know, it would have been nice if they could have done all the other things that that seniors do. Uh, my daughter's graduating from from Central next month, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, similar circumstance, but certainly something that'll be very memorable for them uh, in, in this way. Yeah, I don't think anybody would uh, choose this path, but um, it's 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 the hand they've been dealt, so they make the best of it. And I agree with you; I think it'll be memorable when they look back. They'll say, "You know, I graduated in 2020," and everyone will say, "Oh, wow, that was the COVID year." And I, let's, <laughs> Let's hope there's only one yes, that was the, right. the COVID year and not uh, a COVID year. Right. Hey, Barb, uh, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind me asking a question about the, your U of M situation as well. Sure. Okay. Um, in 2017, uh, you ended up having to step down from your U.S. attorney position due to the Sessions and Trump dismissal going on. Um, that was 
approximately the time that you took your position at Michigan, correct? In 2017? Uh, yep. Right after I left there, I uh, came over to, to the law school. Okay. Um, I saw in your bio, as uh, I was checking through things, that you got your undergrad and your law degree from Michigan. Um, so my question was, was it sort of a blessing in disguise to become a professor at Michigan? Because I've heard that the Michigan grads, in quotes, all dream of one day returning and being part of the university. And, and I was wondering if that was a, a feeling you may have experienced, you know, being able to go back and uh, be part of the university and, you know, and contribute and give back in a way. Oh, no doubt. I am tremendously fortunate to have the opportunity to be teaching at Michigan Law School. Um, I love the Department of Justice. I was there for 19 years, first as an assistant U.S. attorney and then as the U.S. attorney. And, um, you know, it's an institution I care deeply about. So it was sad for me to leave. It was sad for me to leave that work, which I cared about, and my friends. I mean, when you work somewhere for 19 years, you develop a lot of close friendships. Um, but um, when I left there, um, I, I thought there are very few um, places in the world that I could go where I would leave the Department of Justice and have just as much fondness for an institution as the University of Michigan. So I was extremely fortunate to be able to come back. And um, I, I think the work that I'm doing now is, is just as important, if not more important, to help teach uh, the next generation of lawyers and help them understand the importance of the rule of law and uh, our constitution and uh, the way uh, you know, law is administered fairly in our country. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, a blessing and, um, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, my, my daughter, I'm going to toot my own horn. She, she graduated from Michigan in 2016. So I, I understand the, the whole Michigan pride thing and, uh, she, she feels pretty much the same way. So, yeah, well, thank you. Um, so speaking of the whole rule of law, um, thing, uh, that's really kind of why we had asked you on, um, Barbara was to kind of get your take and some insight as to, um, what are the boundaries, uh, and the authorities that are given to, um, our government, both state and federal during this COVID pandemic, um, just to kind of, you know, be a little bit more specific about it. Um, you know, we're just about a month, I think maybe a little bit more than a month uh, into the Michigan stay at order home, uh, uh, stay at home order. And uh, there's been a growing protest on the stay at home orders, the closing of non-essential businesses. In fact, Michigan always seems to be a hotbed and things start here and then they kind of roll out into other states. And I think there's political reasons for that. Um, but what you're hearing a lot uh, more of nowadays is, does the governor have the constitutional authority to impose uh, these kinds of restrictions um, upon us during these times? And, um, you know, I'd like to hear kind of what, what your take is uh, on kind of where that power sort of begins and ends um, from the state government standpoint. Yeah, really important topic, I think. One thing that I think it's important to know is that when you work in government, I worked in the federal government uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, part of the Department of Justice, at least since 9-11, government has worked to be prepared for crises. 
And the goal has been all hazards. After 9-11, of course, the immediate thought was a terrorist attack and how do you respond? And federal, state, and local governments all worked together to make sure they could communicate with each other, that they knew who the points of contact were, that roles would be clear in the event of some sort of crisis, that there would be um, a unified communication plan. And so while I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, we did a lot of that um, drilling. We did drills on pandemics Mm. and terrorist attacks, um, acts of nature like, you know, tornadoes, blackouts. Um, We did um, oil spills in the Great Lakes, um, all all kinds of things, Um, dirty bomb attacks, other things. And, And it was useful to get together with all of those different entities to just sort of test. What are the capabilities? What are the laws? Our role was to be legal advisor. Um, hospitals would be involved in those tests to see what, what they could do when they were um, taxed with their, their resources. And so um, when people say, who could have seen this coming, although no one ever sees a particular crisis coming, I suppose, um, there is some readiness that is done. And the laws are part of that. Um, and one thing that's important to think about, too, when you think about the laws, whenever you are Um, a governmental entity, you want to know, number one, what can we do legally? And then a second question is, what should we do legally? And those are two very different things. But you have to start with knowing what the the boundaries are, and and then you have to act within those boundaries. It doesn't mean you have to exercise the fullest extent of your authority. It may not be appropriate to do that. But once you know what those boundaries are, then you can decide what is appropriate. And so during a crisis, like a, a public health crisis, typically uh, what, what a, a court would look to on a challenge is whether the government was um, trying to meet some compelling governmental need. And one of those things will be a public health crisis, certainly. Um, as long as a law that restricts other rights is reasonably related to that goal, and as long as it doesn't single out individuals or groups for special limits or restrictions, then that reasonableness test is the test that prevails. If it goes further and it restricts particular groups, like a curfew for people under a certain age, for example, um, then the courts will look at something that's called strict scrutiny, which is even narrower. You have to have a compelling governmental interest, and you have to find that the restriction is narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. So you, you, you can't ban everything to achieve that goal. You know, you can't use an AK-47 when a fly swatter will do. You can only be as restrictive as necessary to achieve that compelling purpose. So here we are with COVID-19, and the governor in our state has issued this stay-at-home order, and the goal is to reduce the spread. Um, she's uh, banned things like elective medical procedures in an effort to avoid the spread and, and preserve uh, the personal protective equipment that medical professionals use. She has um, banned essential businesses because we know people still need food and they need to get gas in their cars and um, maybe basic home, uh, home maintenance things. So some businesses are open, but only those which have been deemed essential. And he even saw until recently, I think the rules were recently relaxed, some parts of stores were restricted. So if you went into Home Depot, you could buy certain things, but not others like things in the gardening department. And the goal there was to reduce the number of employees who are exposed uh, to the virus. If you can uh, staff Home Depot with um, five or 10 employees instead of 20 or 30 employees, that's a good thing because for every person exposed, they are likely to expose two to three other people. So as long as those things are reasonably related to achieving that goal of 
preventing the spread of a deadly disease, um, then typically that's going to be lawful. The other question is then, so what should you do? And that's where I think we're seeing some differences in different states where uh, some states are taking a more uh, pro-business view of trying to keep business open and thriving. Um, Others, perhaps like Governor Whitmer, are taking maybe a more protective pro-health view. Um, But as long as they're acting within those legal boundaries, that's their call as a matter of policy. There, there were two words there that really kind of stuck out, um, and, and those were should and reasonable. Uh, and, and so the laws kind of dictating these kind of unique situations really are open to those interpretations, not, not, just, not necessarily just a black and white, this is what is and this is where the authority lies, but what should be done and what is reasonable to be done for, I guess you could say, the uh, preferred outcome. Right. And, you know, so often that's where um, the challenges are in the law, the gray areas in the law. It's, it's rare that we have black and white lines in the application of the law. You know, we may say, here's what the law is, but how you apply it often does require an analysis of what's reasonable and some judgment. And that's where reasonable minds can disagree. I mean, even we saw protesters in Michigan who were protesting uh, Governor Whitmer's stay home order as being too restrictive. Um, And there's value in that, I think. In fact, she um, has um, uh, eased some of those restrictions. I don't know the reasons, but it's quite possible some of that was in response to protests. Um, I don't like the fact that the protesters were out publicly and violating social distancing rules because I think that likely contributes to the spread of it. But a protest within people's vehicles or a social media protest, all of those things are permissible. And that's why we have democracy so that uh, voters can express their views. If they think that restrictions go too far, it gives a governor a chance to reevaluate and decide where those lines ought to be drawn. I think one of the other things that Governor Whitmer has said is that she's using data to try to drive what her decisions are. And Michigan is different from other states. You know, we have been, uh, I think, something like the third highest uh, uh, outbreak and fatality rates in the country with more than 3,000 deaths. And so I think that makes us a little bit different maybe than some other states where the data has not been so severe. And we're seeing a little bit of the flattening of the curve, which could contribute to a decision that maybe the restrictions can be um, softened just a little bit. Um, but all of those are within the judgment of Uh, the leader subject to um, the will of the people, because ultimately elected leaders are accountable to the people who put them there. Um, And if the backlash is too strong, at some point, you know, an elected leader um, has to decide uh, who to listen to, the the medical health professionals, um, the business professionals, you know, there are people, uh, Small Business Association and Regional Chamber of Commerce has called for easing of restrictions um, and voters. And I think a governor has to take all of those facts into consideration, um, knowing what those legal boundaries are, and then decide where she's going to draw that line uh, to maximize health and safety and make sure that uh, the economy is not so um, damaged as to um, render it um, unable to recover. And in this situation, it can be, you know, you might do something to try and keep the economy afloat, but that could really be short-sighted. You know, if the pandemic got so worse, that would crash the economy more so than closing non-essential businesses. Right. And sometimes people express very strong opinions about things. Um, I, I, I doubt that any of these, uh, the governors of our 50 states, 
are out there trying to kill people or um, showing, you know, careless disregard for lives. I think they're all trying to get it right. They're all dealing with slightly different st data and statistics because uh, the outbreak has hit them in different ways. I think they're trying to keep people safe and keep deaths down, but also trying to uh, keep their economies alive. You know, people need jobs to survive. Mm -hmm. And all of those things can be a real challenge. But I think you're right that the, the, the really um, challenging part of all of this is the unknown. Um, we're seeing a bit of a flattening in Michigan. Um, and the governor's stay home order is uh, currently will end May 15th. I think she will have to look at the data at that time before she decides whether to lift it or extend it, because you just don't know what things might look like even then. It's, it changes so rapidly. Uh, one hopes that all of this staying at home uh, will have stopped the spread. But once we go back outside, is it still there? Or, um, you know, we know that it only lives for a couple of weeks, um, uh, the active virus uh, in any one individual. And so if... Uh, if we wait long enough, can we tamp it down? I don't know. I think that all of that seems to evolve. And so um, I think that elected leaders need to um, rely on data and not on hunches and not on uh, hope, but on you know actual uh, data. To, and, and then, of course, there's some guesswork, but making the best guess they can based on what the, the information shows them. We don't have leaders that base their opinions on hunches, do we? <laughs> Well, I don't want to get too political here, but I, I have uh, I have found um, you know President Trump to um, violate some of the rules that I learned in critical incident response and continuity of operations, um, mostly which relate to messaging. You know, as the leader in the federal government, much of this is for states. These uh, stay-at-home orders and other things are part of the state's police powers. But there are certain things when we were doing all of these crisis response exercises. There was a role for the federal government. There's a whole incident management system that the Department of Homeland Security has that explains the role of federal, state, and local government. And at the federal level, there are a couple of big things that can be done. One is the management of resources. So using this uh, law called the Defense Production Act to identify resource needs and can actually command the manufacture of supplies that are needed, like personal protective equipment, masks, ventilators. The president has the power to order, and it has to pay for it, but order companies to start manufacturing those things. The president can also then decide how those things should be allocated. And so if there's a need currently in the state of New York, he can send them all there. And then as that evolves and uh, the need goes to Michigan, he can order that they be sent there. And so um, I think that's one area where um, he could be a little more proactive. Um, and the other big role for um, uh, the national uh, federal government is to uh, be the lead communicator, you know, using the bully pulpit to try to um, message to governors and to the public. And there are a number of, of best practices there. Um, one is um, accurate facts, be, be right, be first, be accurate, be clear, um, show compassion, and um, show a strategy. Um, and so I, I think that President Trump has been very inconsistent in his messaging, either I'm in charge here or we're leaving it all to the states. I have authority, but I take no responsibility. Um, you know, offering um, some medical remedies that are not only unproven, but in some cases dangerous. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that um, his response has been um, not what, what one would describe as best practices for uh, incident management. That, that checklist that you kind of ran down, 
I was thinking if you were to put, you know, was not in front of each one of those, you know, <laughs> he, he would probably hit all those boxes. Uh, on, on April 14th, he, he said uh, that his authority with regard to the COVID crisis is total and that states can't do anything without the approval of the president of the United States. I'm going to assume this is not an accurate statement based on what yeah, you've told us so far. It, it's absolutely not an accurate statement. The police power belongs to the states. And so in terms of stay home orders, it is up to the states. The president did issue guidance and that can be very helpful because uh, they have access to the Centers for Disease Control um, and FEMA and other resources like that that can provide what's called technical assistance. And so to say, based on the data, it appears prudent uh, to have stay-home orders, that can be very helpful. But as we've also seen, it can be a very localized issue. And so having states make those decisions makes sense. And under the Constitution, it is within the state's rights uh, to do those things. But you know, there, there is that, that role for the president. It's, it's not that role of uh, issuing the stay-home order. So he does not have absolute authority or really any authority there. But offering technical assistance, communication, um, and resources are the things that the federal government should be doing. And it's in those areas that I think the president has actually been lacking. I, I had a question, and, and it kind of um, goes back to a comment you made a moment ago about we have um, 50 governors and 50 states who are trying to do what's best for their particular situation. Um, and especially since you, you had uh, experiences from the uh, 9-11 crisis, do you tend to find that this pandemic, this health crisis, this whole country's going through has turned into a blue or red crisis? And are, are, I just get the sense that some of these governors, the things that they're choosing to do for their states is, is more politically driven than driven for the country's sake overall. And I just wonder if you had any thoughts about that. Uh, yes, I do think in some instances we've seen that, but not everywhere. Um, if you look at, um, you, you know, we've had a, a very good alliance and have acted in, in lockstep our Governor DeWine in Ohio, who's a Republican, and Governor Whitmer in Michigan, who's a Democrat. And their response has been very similar. Uh, both were pretty quick to shut down schools um, and to have stay-home orders. In fact, I think Governor DeWine in Ohio was quicker than Michigan and um, delayed their primary election, which Governor Whitmer did not do. And uh, I think one has to wonder to what extent you know, that may have contributed to the outbreak in Michigan. Um, so I think in some instances, not so much, but in others, um, I, I think so. And some of it may be nakedly political in trying to please President Trump. You know, I know the governor of Florida um, has uh, run on his support for President Trump. His political ads are all about uh, make America great again. Um, and so he was very slow uh, to close and issue a stay home order. But I also think some of it relates to one's worldview. If you are um, a very pro-business person, um, you may find it important and, or essential to keep business open. So in Florida, for example, they wanted to keep their beaches open for tourism. It's a huge part of the economy of Florida that people in the spring uh, come to Florida and spend a lot of money there. And so um, it, it may be um, more of uh, a political philosophy of being big business than just... Um, you know, whether you lean red or blue. 
I do think, though, that some of it does come down to that red or blue state aspect. Um, these protests that we've seen in Michigan have struck me as, you know, in some instances, I'm sure genuinely felt by people who uh, want to be able to go to work and do other things. But in other instances, we've seen, um, you know, political organizations are the ones behind these protests. And I think using it simply as an opportunity to attack the person in charge. And so uh, if you want to uh, get the Democratic governor out of office, you have a right-wing protest. If you um, don't like what the president's saying, it's a daily opportunity uh, to criticize uh, his response. And so I think that um, although part of democracy is calling out um, leaders when you disagree with their policies, and I think that's part of a healthy democracy, um, I, I think that uh, the cheap shots are not helpful. And um, it would be nice to see some um, unity within our state and country during this time of crisis. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that last sentiment. It's, I, I admit it, I do my fair share of sparring on social media and knobs and blotto can back me up there. <laughs> and in some, some of the biggest things that I guess irritate me about the opposition's argument is they're not putting the country first in all of this. It, it, it just the the agenda is not for the well-being of our population and our country as a whole and and i guess that's why i asked that question because i run into it a lot and, and it's very frustrating to me I, I don't understand why it wouldn't be country first in something like this when you know people are dying by what hundreds or thousands every day and it doesn't matter what their party affiliation is. We should be concerned about them as our fellow citizens. And I don't know, but that's why I wanted to ask you that question and kind of get your thoughts on it. Yeah, it's a really interesting insight. I have a colleague at Michigan Law School named Professor Richard Primus, who has this theory about constitutional interpretation, but I think it applies equally to the point that you're making, which is, um, you know, lawyers love to use analogies to help people understand points that they're trying to make. And his analogy is that... Um, the law is like a game of playground basketball. Um, you have there, there are no officials. Um, you have to call your own fouls, and the game really depends on people being honest and acting with integrity and agreeing to follow the rules that we've all set out to play by. And if somebody um, cares more about winning than they care about the game, then the game will die. And I think the same is true when it comes to politics. Um, we have certain set of rules that we all have to believe in, you know, the rule of law. Um, and we have to, we may not always like it, but we have to respect it and follow it. We can change it, but um, it, it is what it is and we have to obey it. And if you are instead more interested in winning um, at all costs, eventually you're going to destroy the game. Um, you know, for me personally, seeing Mitch McConnell delay the um, Supreme Court nomination of Merrick Garland is one example of that attempt to destroy the game. And when we have um, uh, people in Congress, I thought also the same way um, when the, the Senate, um, the way they behaved during the impeachment trial. I think that if you try to win at all costs, you're gonna see it come back to bite you when the other party's in power. Um, and eventually there will be no regard for the rule of law. It's just whoever's in power gets to win. And I'm not sure that's, uh, in fact, I know it's not the best way to govern our country. Well, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but you made me think of one more thing, and then I'll drop this. Um, and it goes back to the social media jousting that we do. Um, it, it seems to me that the people on 
opposing me. To them, it, it's it's all about a win or a loss and not what's right and what's wrong. And I think if you take it from the standpoint of what's right and wrong, then it's easy for you to, to look upon this as a problem for the entire country and not, not a political party. So I'll, I'll drop that. Well, but I'll, I'll vouch for you, Fred. You, you, you call it out in those exact terms, just as, as Barbara did, about winning and losing often. You know, that's, that's, that's a lot of times where those discussions go is, um, you know, that it seems to be more important about the winning than uh, the what is right. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's good to know that we have some uh, legal minds at University of Michigan that would back you up now. <laughs> yeah, I think that as we, our pol- politics become so tribal, um, you know, I have read that there are people who, um, you know, don't actually like Donald Trump, but they dislike uh, Democrats more. And so they'd rather uh, vote against Democrats, even if they don't favor that candidate. You know, it's, it's all about my team, your team, my tribe, your tribe. And all I want to do is defeat your tribe. And, you know, really, we ought to be open to ideas um, and deciding what's best in any given situation. And I think the more we just sort of have a knee-jerk reaction to, um, you know, my team cares about these five issues and here's where we stand on these five issues forever. I don't want to think about it. I don't think that's healthy for democracy because the world evolves, issues evolve, technology evolves. We need to be constantly rethinking our views on different things um, as we see this evolution. And if we're stuck in our tribes, um, we're not going to be able to do that. And so I think it is... Uh, dangerous to the country when people are more wedded to the tribes than they are to the country. And, and, it, and it can be you know, seriously and deadly threatening. I, I mean, one, you know, you had kind of talked about the messaging and, you know, giving misinformation about cures or treatments, uh, you know, to appeal to certain tribes. Now, all of a sudden that has real world consequences. Um, the other thing that kind of came to mind was, you know, the president's tweets to certain states about liberation. Uh, and what was he trying to convey there to uh, what seemed like mostly Democratic-run states? Yeah, that is, uh, I think, uh, is a dangerous thing to do because, uh, you know, one of the things you hope for in leaders is to bring calmness to chaos, uh, to calm people down, to promote peace, to promote respect, to promote um, the ability to get along in our multicultural society. Um, instead, we see President Trump trying to stir it up. Um, and he did say, I think in his tweets, liberate Michigan, Wisconsin, and Virginia, all sort of purple states, mm-hmm. you know, meaning they, they are swing states and places where we have seen these kinds of protests, including encouraging in Virginia, um, you know, making uh, references to people's Second Amendment rights. Uh, you know, which suggests bringing a gun to these public events. And I know that happened in Michigan as well. Um, it's really irresponsible and dangerous. He certainly has a right to say it. But again, this goes back to the what you can say versus what you should say. Um, we know that when a president speaks, it can affect the stock market just with his choice of, of words. It can also affect people who might be prone to violent extremism to act when the president gives him permission to do that. And we saw um, that man, Caesar Syoc, last year, yeah, the pipe who was the person who sent, yeah, he sent pipe bombs to a number of prominent Democrats and media outlets. He drove around in a van that had pictures of these people with their faces in um, the crosshairs of a, of a rifle. 
Um, and, uh, you know, most people will see these things and sort of laugh and think it's, he scored political points, but there are others who are out there just waiting to be ignited. And uh, I think it's irresponsible to say those kinds of things. You know, at the same time, um, he is uh, offering guidance. You know, he's uh, he's saying to some, I've got a, a, a stay-at-home order that's been extended through the end of April. Um, and then at the same time, calling to liberate these states. What, what is the message he's sending there? It isn't about public safety. It really is just about inciting political opponents. Um, and he, he does so in a way that I believe is irresponsible and uh, could even result in violence and the loss of life. I see the liberation tweets as really sort of calling for insurrection. Um, you, you know, I, I, maybe I'll be a, uh, kind of on the extreme, but, you know, it goes into my file of these are impeachable offenses uh, when you're, you know, publicly as the president asking for, uh, you know, read between the lines, but violence uh, against other government officials. Yeah, you know, it's um, to be a prosecutable offense for that sort of thing. You have to be a lot more specific, I think, about uh, inciting people to violence. But um, but nonetheless, I, I, I can't disagree with you that that that's. The, it seems like the likely intent behind something like that, right? To just to throw that out there. At the very least, it's reckless, knowing that we have this history of what happened in Charlottesville and uh, uh, what happened with the pipe bomber uh, and other incidents. Uh, you know, we've had issues of uh, domestic terrorism at um, uh, synagogues in Pittsburgh and other places. And so there are people out there who are unstable and um, feel passionately about these political issues. And when they get encouraged by their president, uh, that's all the fuel they need to act. And it's, uh, as you said, very dangerous. Uh, one of the things that we have all kind of, in many ways, relied on, because we know who Trump is, are the people around him to um, either clear up or clean up the messaging or even push back. And uh, particularly in the COVID crisis, I, I'm not sure we're seeing enough of that from the administration. Um, you know, even with many of the White House, House briefings um, that they do, I think daily, I, I, I don't watch them all. Um, you know, I think that there's a role for the other adults in the room to play, um, but it seems like it's difficult for many of them to do. Yeah, it's been really disturbing, I think, to watch. You know, there's Dr. Uh, uh, Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Birx, mm -hmm. who have been there in the room in particular. And, you know, I, I, I can imagine the, um, you know, internal discussion that goes on in their mind. Uh, President Trump is saying outrageous things. And uh, I imagine what they're thinking is, on the one hand, um, that's crazy. I should object and speak out. On the other hand, um, I don't want to lose my job. Um, this is a really important fight. And if I embarrass the president um, in front of the country, he will fire me and I will lose my ability to fight COVID. And instead of me being here, it'll be left to Jared Kushner to help him solve these problems. And so for Dear the love Lord, of God, don't say I, need that. To yeah, <laughs> I need to bite my tongue um, <laughs> so that I can keep my job and continue this work. I, I I, I think I understand it's understandable that they have these hard jobs, but I do think at some point um, they become enablers when they allow this to go. And I know Dr. Burks just the other day 
um, was uh, trying to explain away President Trump's comments about injecting bleach and using ultraviolet light as a cure for COVID, um, which was, you know, really thoughtless. Reckless. Reckless. Yeah, yeah, good word. Um, And what she said was something to the effect of, well, you know, sometimes he likes to process and think out loud. He had just heard this idea. And so he was just talking out loud. Um, well, how about you don't talk out loud, right? <laughs> I mean, you're the president of the United States. I, I think you need to process before you share it with the world. And so, um, but on the other hand, I suppose if she had said something derogatory about the president, um, she might, we may never see her again in, in a public uh, setting. So um I think uh, these people find themselves in really challenging positions, but um, I'd rather see them say nothing and dodge that question than do something that helps cover up for the president. Because I think at some point you become an enabler and a facilitator um, if you do that. And at some point when you have a job in government, you have to be prepared to resign if something just goes too far. To be able to speak out and say, I I can't serve you anymore. You're entitled to people who will uh, work for you. And I can't do that anymore. And then to publicly explain why they resigned so that the public understands uh, what what is going on. So I, 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 I respect that they have this internal struggle. I'm not sure I would resolve it the same way they have. Yeah. Regarding messaging, doesn't what we're talking about make the argument that the politicians should be seen and not heard and that the, the Dr. Fauci's and the Dr. Burks of the world they should be the ones running point instead of doing damage control every time uh, Trump opens his mouth. And it just seems to me that if Pence and Trump weren't even there and just let Fauci and Burks run it, things would be a lot further along. There'd be a lot less anxiety uh, and, and the country would be better off for it. Yes. And, um, you know, we saw that most recently um, after this episode of uh, suggesting the injection of uh, Lysol and bleach and all of these kinds of things. At the very next briefing, the president gave a very, the whole thing lasted about 20 minutes. He introduced uh, the, the doctors and walked away. And maybe that's a better model. You know, I think he can't help himself because he loves the attention. <laughs> but um, I, I do think that we better, I think there's a role for the leader. I don't know if any of you saw the message that um, Queen Elizabeth gave. Um, that has gone around on social media. Mm-hmm. I think that is just textbook, the role for a leader. Uh, it's very big picture. And then deferring to the experts to ask the specific questions about the day. You know, I think in crisis management, typically what you do is you want to meet with your people early in the morning to say, where are we? What's happening? What are the challenges? What have we done since yesterday? What are our goals for the day? And then you get together again at the end of the day to say, did we achieve our goals? What are the What's the data for the day? And then share that with the public. I think that's a very good way to go about that business. And I think there's a role for the leader to be there to show that he's present. But again, it's, it's all of those things. Here are the facts that we know. Here's our strategy for getting through it. And here's some hope and some compassion. You know, we've lost some people. Um, I want to show compassion for the loss. And I want to show hope for the future. We will get through this. And thank you to all the people who are working so hard. I think that's the role for the leader. And then you turn it over to the Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks types to say, um, here's what the data is showing us today. Here's the latest that we have on testing and vaccinations and other things. Um, that, to me, is is the textbook way that it should be done. And I think President Trump has um, grabbed the spotlight a little more, perhaps, than he should. 
just a wee bit. <laughs> yeah, and, and even in a way that's not politically helpful to him. It's, uh, uh, I, I think it has exposed his weaknesses in a way that he would have preferred to remain hidden. Uh, I think he believes otherwise, though. I, I mean, that's his ego. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, w- one of his biggest enablers um, during his administration uh, since Sessions step, stepped down ha- has been Barr. Um, and he recently, in an interview, I thought was kind of going out of his legal lane, talking about the pandemic in ways of economics and medicine. Um, but he also kind of insinuated that um, he could use the federal government to step in to states that were doing too much in, in the way of their stay-at-home orders. Uh, does this jive with, with your understanding of what his role could be? No. Now he was a little vague in what he said. Always and so is. I don't know if that is. Yeah, I don't know if that was the fault of the interviewer or if he was deliberately trying to just sort of throw a bomb out there uh, to have a chilling effect on governments. Because what he said was something like, "We um, do we really need all these draconian laws where we're hiding under our beds?" Uh, you know, to suggest that these stay home orders were inappropriate, and then saying we might have to look at some of these orders to see, decide whether they go too far legally. So again, um, you know, as we talked about uh, the ability of states, it's states who have these powers uh, to decide what their shelter-in-place laws will be. There is a role, I think, um, for federal lawsuits if stay-at-home orders are going too far. And in one instance, I'm aware that the Justice Department filed what's called a statement of interest, which they have the right to file in private lawsuits if there is some federal interest at stake. Um, and one of those, and I, and I agree with their position, it was a place where a state, I forget which one now, maybe Texas, um, maybe Kentucky, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember, but a state had put a ban on all church services in an effort to avoid spreading the virus. But included in that ban was an effort by a church to have um, a drive-in service, mm. um, and, and that it was not narrowly tailored to achieve the purpose. And I, I, I tend to agree with that, right? I mean, if you... If your goal is to protect people from the virus and you want to have a church service at, say, the site of a drive-in movie theater, and you have everybody pull up in their car, and uh, you're able to have this where everyone is, everyone is listening to uh, the, the preacher uh, over a microphone and be there together uh, to experience you know, a spiritual community, I think that's probably okay. And so they filed a statement of interest in that case. And, and the purpose is to educate the court on what the law is. So I think as long as they're very selective in choosing places like that to just weigh in and give expert advice on the law to the judge, I think that's fine. But um, as I said, the statements he made in his interview seemed to suggest and support President Trump's statements that he was the one who has authority over these governors to decide when they can reopen and the like. And that's just not the case. And you know, hiding under their beds and other things like that. Uh, as you say, I think he ought to stay in his own lane about the law um, and educate the public and educate governors about what the law is, and that's fine. Um, but he uh, consistently has proven to be, I think, an enabler of President Trump in, in this arena, as well as in perpetuating the idea that the Russia investigation was a hoax and that the FBI is some deep state out to get him and spying on his campaign and some of those kinds of things. Uh yeah, yeah, I was. I, I kind of read the the entire interview or uh, big chunks of it, and it was like, why would he even comment on this? But what what you see over and over again with Barr is, you know, he he probably would agree in another time and space with everything that you just said. 
But then there's that, you know, aligning himself up with the president. And, and so then it becomes purely political at that point in time. And, and, and that's what he seems to really have, um, uh, have been about, you know, very much about the politics of his position and uh, not as much about um, the law, at, at least it, it is from my standpoint and many other uh, like-minded. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think if you look at his record on so many of these things, it's actually been, you know, kind of head scratching some of the things that he's done, especially one area where um, I, I think it has been particularly troubling is some of the opinions his Office of Legal Counsel have issued to protect President Trump from disclosing yes. uh, some of his records to Congress and to the state court prosecutor in uh, Manhattan who's investigating uh, tax and financial matters there. Um, William Barr has expressed the view of a very strong executive. Uh, that is kind of his constitutional philosophy and interpretation, which is fine. Uh, but um, he has gone so far to protect this president that I worry that ultimately he is damaging the institution. Um, because I think at the end of the day, we need transparency and trust in our president. He's not someone who is above the law. He's a citizen leader. Um, and, you know, we rejected the idea of a king who's above the law when we wrote the Constitution. So um, I, I think that uh, my guess is if you got him alone in a room, he would say, I'm not defending Trump. I'm defending the role of the presidency. Um, but I think that uh, by doing so, he has gone so far that he's actually undermined the credibility of his office and his ability to do that. Yeah. Um, to, to bring it back down to, to the state level again, um, you know, when, when Governor Whitmer and other governors put in their lockdown orders and um, closing non-essential businesses, uh, particularly here in Michigan, people really sort of just kind of wigged out about, you know, the fact that they couldn't garden or go recreational boating. Um, and, you know, a lot of it seemed to be very much faux outrage, in my opinion. Um, but there have been real serious consequences uh, regarding other sectors of our society um, that people aren't thinking about enough. And um, you had brought this up to me um, as we were prepping for the show, and, and that is how the COVID crisis is affecting the criminal justice system. And I've seen a few headlines about it. Um, there might have been some stories done on the news, but I don't think it's getting the kind of attention that it should be. Um, could, could you kind of explain kind of what the challenges there are and, and, and the different levels um, that are all being affected by COVID in, in regard to law enforcement? Yeah, I, I guess I would say that there are three broad levels where we're seeing an impact. One is on the front lines, you know, police officers. Uh, the Detroit Police Department, for example, has had a number of um, COVID cases because they deal with the public on the front lines. And um, it's become very difficult for them to do their jobs. As a result, you know, I worry that people who are prone to commit crimes can act with impunity because it's very difficult for them to do their jobs. Um, you know, domestic violence offenders, um, you know, the, the survivors of domestic violence are now a home with their assailants. And so um, difficult for police officers to do their jobs the way they normally would. Um, and then that, that also uh, is in, driven in part because of the fact that courts are having trouble doing their job. So if police want to arrest somebody, uh, I think that bringing them to court, um, I imagine you know judges want to say, well, this one better be good <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to drag, drag me all the way down here. Um, courts are mostly um, 
working uh, electronically. And I think in some ways this has been a good opportunity for courts to become more nimble with using um, video conferencing and things where that's possible. Um, and, and then they're, they're reserving for live hearings just uh, the things they must do, like initial appearances for new arrests and bail hearings on new arrests. And I think with uh, a strong preference to release people on bond. Um, and our, our, our chief justice on the Michigan Supreme Court, Bridget McCormick, has been doing really a wonderful job at the appellate level of having appellate uh, cases being heard by, by a um, video teleconference. And that works, I think, pretty well. I think where we have to be careful, though, is with um, individual defendants. I know um, when I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office, one of the reasons the Federal Defender Office often resisted going to a video teleconference system was they wanted to put eyes on their clients. They wanted to meet them. They wanted to develop a rapport with them of trust because they were going to have to give them legal advice about whether to go to trial or take a guilty plea. And that's hard to do if you've never met the person in person. And also they wanted to take an accounting of their medical situation. If you never actually get to see the person, it's hard to know whether they're getting their medication, if they seem healthy, you know, well-fed, well-cared for. And so um, there is something lost in the translation to do things on video. Um, and then the third place where uh, probably most acutely we're seeing problems is in jails and prisons. Yeah. Uh, it is almost impossible to socially distance in jails and prisons. And although they're prepared to deal with outbreaks of illness, I, I don't think anybody's prepared to deal with one of this scale. Um, you know, you have the ability to move people to other facilities in a normal times if there's an outbreak. You can't do that if the outbreak is everywhere. And so um, I think that's a real problem. I know the Justice Department and some states are wrestling with um, releasing some people, but that's not something that you can do uh, in a knee-jerk way or, um, uh, you know, quickly. It requires some real thought, and I'm hopeful that one of the silver linings of all of this will be perhaps a more thoughtful approach about how we deal with some questions of incarceration. Um, there has been an expression in general terms at the Justice Department to release people who have served more than half their terms, who are nonviolent, who are older, and I don't know what the age cutoff there is. I think it's like 70. Uh, older offenders, people who are ill, who might be susceptible to getting um, the virus and, and um, making it fatal to them. Um, but it's difficult because you have to identify all of those people and process them. And then once you do, they have to stay in quarantine for 14 days before they can be sent home. You have to make sure they have housing. You can't just throw them out and be homeless. And if someone has not had a home for many years, it may be difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, you need to make sure they have medical care and that you're not just throwing them out where they're going to um, you know, be on the streets homeless without medical care. So a lot of things have to be considered. So I think that transitional housing piece is probably what we need to do a better job of and have more capacity for. I also think we should be looking not just at release, but at furloughs. Um, everybody wants to release nonviolent, mm -hmm. wants to release nonviolent offenders. Um, my pet peeve is um, the white collar criminal, because I think that um, many of them are there not because they acted out of hopelessness, the way we see some you know street criminals act, um, but out of greed. You know, people like Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort and other white collar criminals, Bernie Madoff, you know, they're in prison because of greed. And the reason we lock them up is not because we think they're dangerous to commit a violent offense, but as a matter of deterrence, we want to let people know that um, they should respect the rule of law. And if they don't, there will be severe consequences. That is to prevent them from committing further crimes and other members of the public from committing further crimes. And so if you see that, wow, Bernie Madoff got this very lengthy sentence for fraud, I better not engage in fraud 
it can have that deterrent effect, I think, more so in the white collar arena than any other. And so I, I am not in favor of letting out people like Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort and Bernie Madoff. But I think perhaps furloughs are appropriate for people like that. Um, you know, home confinement for a while so the virus passes and then send them back to finish their terms. And so I think that's something we should explore as well. But uh, I don't know that many of those things can be done on the fly. But I think uh, in, in the coming years, those are things that we should explore as part of our efforts at criminal justice reform. From a prosecutor's point of view, you might also be looking at a situation like this and saying, well, I put X amount of months or years into putting somebody into prison to make them an example and then to have them turn around and, you know, get out. From a personal point of view, that that must rub you the wrong way in some respects. Yeah, you know, I, I think we as prosecutors understand that our job is to act on behalf of the public. It's not uh, for us personally. So I don't think so. I think if there was somebody that uh, I personally prosecuted who was being released for the right reasons, I would support. Um, it is uh, just this idea that if you're not violent, you get out is the one that rubs me the wrong way. And I also think that even though there may be people who did commit violent crimes, it may be that their release is appropriate. Uh, if they've reached a certain age, we know statistically that once people get over, say, age 40 or so, their likelihood of committing a violent crime is reduced substantially. And so I think we just need to be thoughtful about how we decide who gets released and not just do it in a knee-jerk way. I think sometimes politicians are very concerned about releasing someone who then commits another crime and they'll feel like they have blood on their hands and they will be uh, punished or uh, um, blamed for that act. Um, you know, I, th I think that if you're going to let people out, there's always that possibility. But um, we have to tolerate probably more than a 0% chance of a problem if we're going to have a meaningful response to this. One of the things that you've mentioned there was, you know, how we uh, deal with these issues as they come up again in the future. And one of my big concerns um, mainly from a political standpoint, but but attaching itself to, say, both parties, is are we learning anything and will we be better prepared? Will we put the mechanisms in place so that, you know, not everything is a fire drill? And so that, okay, if we have to shut down certain segments of the economy, here are the things that are already in place and that we, you know, this is kind of, you know, what we have to go through. And unfortunately, I kind of feel like history is on my side that we don't do a good job of learning from our previous uh, um, events. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be doing the same fire drill again if it's not COVID and it's, you, you know, something else. Yeah, shame on us if, if we yeah. don't uh, learn some lessons from this, right? Those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. I think there are a couple things that um, I would think about there. Um, one is that um, in government, I think, we tend to always be fighting the last mm -hmm. battle. So after 9-11, we prepared really hard for um, uh, airline-driven terrorist attacks. We did a really good job at avoiding that. But you know, it's, anticipating the next one is just as important as solving the last one. So of course, you need to solve the last one, but you also need to think about all hazards you know, so pandemics, natural disasters, uh, cyber attacks, all of those kinds of things need to be things that government is thinking about. The other thing I would like to see happen is uh, one of the things that happened after 9-11 that I think was a very good thing was a bipartisan commission that um, investigated the 9-11 attacks. And it led to a number of recommendations 
and changes in the way we govern. And it would be useful, I think, to see that again, because um, you don't want people politicizing this and you don't want recommendations to be based on um, either short-term politics or even long-term worldview, but on what is a best practice based on lessons from what happened. And so I think it would be useful for Congress to create some sort of bipartisan commission task force, whatever you want to call it, uh, to kind of study all of the things that caused this, the ways our response may have been lacking and could be better, and then improving that. You know, things like making sure the stockpile, the national stockpile of medical emergency supplies is adequate to the task. Um, it, it, had, it had run down. And I know President Trump wants to blame President Obama, but, you know, three years in, if the cupboard is bare, it's shame on you for not replenishing. And so what, what needs to be in there? And of course, you can never anticipate all the things you might need because it depends on the particular hazard. Uh, if there is no uh, vaccine or test for a particular uh, virus, you, you're not going to have it in the stockpile. But, you know, certain things like masks and other things should be in there. And so uh, I think a bipartisan group that can look at all the things that uh, could have been done better and making recommendations for improvements in the future would be an essential way to learn from I this hope so. incident. Um, and, well, um, we've kind of gone through a, a complete list of things that have really happened and uh, happened with the pandemic and really appreciate your insights uh, on all of it, uh, especially as they pertain to um, the boundaries of the law. Um, the only other really political thing that happened this week um, was the Senate Intelligence Committee finally released its uh, Russian interference report. And, um, you know, they came out more or less just as every other intelligence agency has saying that the Russians tried to interfere, did interfere, and did it with the intentions of aiding Trump's election. Um, you know, does this kind of put this chapter to bed, you think? It should. I don't know whether those with a political agenda will allow it to go to bed, but um, it's not a surprise, but it is nice to see the bipartisan Senate committee, which has a Republican majority, making this finding because, uh, you know, President Trump has repeatedly characterized Russian interference as a hoax. Um, to me, the thing that was most compelling happened in January of 2017 when the intelligence community, all 17 of our intelligence agencies, reached a conclusion, wrote a joint report that said it was Russia that interfered in our election and that it was their goal to help President Trump and to hurt Hillary Clinton. Um, they reached that conclusion way back then. Robert Mueller then did his investigation, which, as you said, his report uh, was final about a year ago, and he found the same thing. So we, we had two findings about that. Um, the House Intelligence Committee made this finding. So we had three. But... Um, you know, President Trump has been able to characterize all of those as either uh, findings based on political rivals or by the, the so-called deep state, which, in my view, having worked in government for 19 years, is really simply the career professionals who work in, uh, as administrations come and go, they stay and try to maintain their professionalism to get the job done aside from politics. Um, and so to have this bipartisan Senate committee that is led by a Republican majority make that same finding, um, I hope, can help us to retire that hoax uh, language. Now, you know, I'm sure President Trump won't stop using it. And those who uh, look to him uh, to take their cues, those who don't bother to read the news, 
We'll probably continue to learn that. But uh, I'm hopeful that there is a group of voters um, who are moderates, who are in the middle, who just want good government, who just want good leadership, who will find this to be persuasive, um, that there was indeed Russian interference in our election and that it was never a hoax. Um, I, I believe that there's still more of those kind of voters out there than any other. And so for, for them, I think it's useful. The, uh, the hoax was a hoax. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, um, well, I, I was just going to say to Barb that uh, I have been delegated to uh, ask you about <laughs> probably the most pressing matter on our minds. And um, it, it's in regards to the skeleton crew. Oh, <laughs> yes. We were wondering if you uh, give us a little background on that, how it started, and uh, who do these bones belong to? I would. Um, so for those who don't know, the skeleton crew is um, some skeletons, uh, props, that my their neighbors um, in Ann Arbor, there's a house that it's a, a mom and dad and a couple young kids who put these out every Halloween. They've got a couple of uh, life-size uh, skeletons that they put out and, and every day they're in different poses. You know, one day they might be painting the house. Another day they might be uh, chilling out and having a barbecue. One day they might be involved in uh, yard work and um, they put them out at Halloween and give everybody a chuckle and uh, you know, change the poses every night. And they brought them back out during the stay at home order coronavirus. And um, they're very amusing. And you know, when there's, so little to amuse us in these times and so much bad news every day uh, that I enjoy. I, I, I walk or run over there every day to check them out and see what their pose is. And I've start, I have I chatted with them a little bit and gotten to know them a little bit because uh, I've seen them out there and told them how much I enjoy them. And I've been posting, with their permission, posting them uh, on Twitter, their daily positions with a hashtag skeleton crew. And I've received many, many positive responses, you know, for about every thousand uh thank yous this gave me a chuckle there's one that says too morbid for covid and uh <laughs> you know and i tell me i don't think it's commentary on covid they, they said you know they're little kids uh, their young kids suggest the poses uh and and the mom and dad try to you know they all together put them out i, I really think it's they're just having fun with it and they, they want to do something to help brighten the neighborhood and fill their days and uh, i know many of us in the neighborhood get a kick out of it so i've been posting them and uh i get a lot of positive feedback from people who say you know thanks for the smile no, it is nice to see that on Twitter because the it, it's usually just a nonstop uh, train of depression <laughs> and <laughs> angst and arguments, and then right. to, to see something like the skeleton crew pop up, it it definitely helps us all to reset a little bit and smile. Yep, that's what I like about it. There's nothing political about it whatsoever. It's just for some laughs. Uh, yeah, but certainly. Thanks for. Uh, for sharing. I, I thought, I thought they were maybe yours. Nope. Um, I've had people suggest yeah. that they're not, and I can't take credit. I can't take credit <laughs> for them. Um, it is, it is truly, uh, someone else in our neighborhood. And, uh, I, I enjoy them very much. And people often say, please tell your neighbors, thank you. And I pass it on when I see them out. All right. Hey, uh, uh, Barb. So, um, that's, um, uh, uh Pretty much about it, I think, for the questions that we had kind of prepared and some of the topics that we wanted to speak to. I don't know if there was any other um, topic that, that you wanted to kind of bring up, uh, not necessary. Um, you know, we've kind of got a little bit more than an hour here. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, again, you know, thank you so much for being a part of Bottoms Up. 
Thanks very much. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. I appreciate the thoughtful questions, and I appreciate your efforts to just, uh, you know, have conversations and share information with listeners. I think we need more of that, you know, thoughtful conversation. Um, and uh, podcasts are a great forum for that. So thanks for what you do. Uh, oh, usually it's very much our pleasure as, uh, you know, we're drinking beer in most cases uh, during during our recording. Um, and uh, perhaps uh, someday uh, we'll get that opportunity to either record or even just uh, share a beer with you. But uh, uh, Potoms Up is a combination of both politics and, and uh, uh, good libations. I did want to say one more thing before we let you go, and uh, I'm not ashamed to tell you this. I, I'm a big fanboy of yours. Um, I I used to really, really enjoy seeing you when you were on MSNBC, and I, I looked forward to hearing you. And uh, I just want to let you know that uh, I, I really thought you were fantastic, and hopefully they'll get you back on and we'll see you back on television. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, I hope so. I, um, I, I've been on just a few times during COVID, and I think they are appropriately focusing on doctors and scientists, but I'm sure I'll be back when we can get back to focusing on news and the law. Oh, I'm, I'm sure we Absolutely. will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, guys. No, it was a great conversation. I appreciate right, you. Thank you. Thank, you. thank you. Great talking with you. Thanks. Bottoms up. Thanks. Bottoms up. Bottoms up. Well, that was a lot of fun, you guys. And uh, I mean, I, I definitely learned a lot. It, it, it's amazing when you uh, get into thumb wrestling matches with people that have that much knowledge and that much information and, and experience. I mean, it was just incredible. I, one of the best episodes I think we've ever done. Yeah, I concur. And I'm a little concerned that we might be getting a tuition bill from University of Michigan. <laughs> we, for the schooling we just got yes yeah we learned a lot right there and uh you know uh, she was a, a terrific guest and and we were honored to to have her on yep absolutely i agree that was fantastic well how about a final recap of the beer uh to uh um, give our last impressions on the electron brown fred where are you going okay. with this one I think it's going to come down as a meh for me. Um, I just am not getting past the sweetness part, which, I, like, like I told you in the beginning, I really don't care that much for. So I'm going to say it's a, it, it's a meh. Uh, Next. Knobs? Uh, I'm going to go with a not for me. Sticking with it. Um, yeah. You're consistent, even if after, not anything else. Yeah. Even after all that, I still have half a glass left. That's sacrilege, friend. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll still finish it. Yeah. Show some respect. It's still cold. <laughs> as, <laughs> as, as much as I thought this beer was going to end up in the for me category uh, because it hit all of the right specs, um, I'm, I'm going to go maybe in the not for me category. Uh, that, that sweetness, there's that stickiness that I don't appreciate in a beer. And, um, you know, that hasn't gone away as, uh, I've gone through the glass. So, uh, there's a lot of other nice dark beers, particularly porters that I know I would pick up, uh, over this. And so I can't imagine, uh, purchasing another, hmm. except for the can, the can is cool. Yeah. You know, awesome looking can. We ought to make posters of that. 
That would be a badass poster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about a tattoo? Go to Georgia and get yourself hooked up. Old Nation. It's fine brewery. All right, guys. Well, it was a blast. Uh, certainly, uh, Barbara um, was an excellent guest. Um, no uh, no need to uh, to carry on with a cultural topic today, right? Nah. So Let's go isolate. Uh, Chill out and isolate on Saturday afternoon. Everyone uh, stay well, and until we get together again, bottoms up. Okay, guys. Bottoms up, up, guys. Politics, some culture and craft beer. Politics, and that is why you're here. Politics, I don't know.